Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Thank you, Amy. And thank you, George, for the intro to a lot of these materials and the newness that we're going through with, uh, with the series that's upcoming. Here in Isaiah, we've been in Isaiah now for three weeks talking about some of these big fundamental questions of the gospel and what it is that we really believe and what are the answers that we see through scripture. The first week, this was right, at, right before Christmas, we talked a lot about sin and Isaiah does a great job of describing sin and the state of this world of a darkness, that there's a darkness over this world, there's a deep darkness that affects everything. We talked about how we don't, people really don't have to be convinced about sin. You can convince people of sin pretty quickly. You can see the effects of sin all around us, the injustices, uh, the hurt and the pain, the immorality within our own lives and within the lives of other people. But it's harder to understand what is fundamentally broken with our world and what's wrong. What causes the injustices that we all experience? What causes the immorality and the hurt and the pain? And as we saw through Isaiah and throughout all of Scripture, what we see is that the problem is our selfishness. The problem isn't our behavior. The problem is that we yearn to be satisfied, to be longed. We just want peace so badly, and we fill it with anything we think will give us peace, and it never does. And that selfish yearning, that selfish turning, looking for things to satisfy us always leads to injustice, always leads to immorality and hurt and to pain, and this selfishness this deep-rooted selfishness within our world is the problem. Why is there no peace? Why do the, does the government shut down? Why are there wars? Why are there, it's Selfishness is the problem because we're incredibly selfish. But as you just get into your own life, why is there little peace in my home? Why is there little peace in my life? Why don't I have any peace? Because of selfishness. My selfishness is the problem. It's not my circumstances. It's me. And so then we talked in that second week about the Savior then. If our fundamental problem is selfishness, this longing for peace, this yearning, this need to be satisfied, then what does the Savior actually provide for us? What was Israel longing for in the darkness? What was being promised out of Isaiah? What is this world longing for and in desperate need of? What are we talking about? Israel wasn't sitting there longing for, I just wish someone would come who could show us how to live a good life. They've had plenty of good examples of how to live a good life that would honor God. What they needed was a Savior. What was promised in Isaiah was a, was a Savior, someone who would take upon themselves the burden and the grief, the sorrow, the punishment for, that was we deserved, he would take upon himself. And so what we see with, the, with Christ then, what he actually did for us is that he took on himself everything that we deserve and then there's this exchange that happens, and he gives us himself. He gives us his life. 
that he doesn't just become a means to an end, right? He doesn't just become a model for us to follow. He doesn't just become a way to get to heaven. He doesn't just become a way in which my life gets better. He becomes our life. He gives me himself. I have been filled up with him, which fixes that fundamental problem of that selfishness, that aching, the yearning. Well, he gives me himself. He takes upon himself everything that I deserve and gives me the credit for his life and gives me his very, very presence itself. The, the maker of the heavens and earth is my husband, right out of Isaiah. This, I have this joy and this satisfaction now because I have Jesus. And this week, we want to talk about what comes next. And as Amy, Amy read, what are we actually looking forward to? Where is this world going? Where are we going what is actually going to happen at the end, and how am I supposed to live now in the meantime? And what you have throughout Scripture is you have a beautiful picture of the ending of the world. Where is this all going to go? All of this that we're working towards, all that we're building up, all of these lives, everything, how is the story going to end? Especially when you think about all of the darkness that invades our world. There's so much hurt, pain, and injustice. How could the story ever turn out to be a good ending? What, how could this story ever end well? And there's a couple of options that we can have when it comes to viewing the world and what we think the world is like and how we think the world is going to come to an end. From a more naturalistic perspective, and it's a fair perspective if you really believe in natural uh, cause and effect. There's no maker, there's no God, there's no Jesus in that sense. I mean, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. The world will burn up one day. The sun will extinguish, and all of this will be gone. And maybe new solar systems will come out of that, you know, death of our star, but I mean, everything in the end ends. It's just a natural cause and effect. We can try to delay it as long as we can, but, you know, you can just see the world is getting well, it's getting warmer and warmer. The sun is going to burn up. Everything is going to fit. I mean, we're just, it's just not sustainable. At some point, the whole world, the whole universe will, will cease. And that's the natural end to a natural existence. And if that's true, well, then we try to live the best life that we can now, right? We try to alleviate and avoid as much suffering as possible in this world because this life is all there is. So you should live it up. You should enjoy your life as much as you can now because you won't get a second chance. There won't be another life. And that we really try to eliminate the sources of suffering in our life, right? And you can see this. This is, this is the way the world, much of the world operates. Right? You just try to eliminate suffering. I don't have time for suffering. I don't have time for this. Right? I don't want anybody around me who brings me down. I don't need these types of things in my life. I don't need negative influences. I need positive ones. I need to live the best life I can, right? I want to be the best version of me. I want to be the best me. And I want to see that others can do it too, right? I want to, I want to eliminate the sufferings of others. I'm going to work hard even to eliminate the suffering of other people because in this naturalistic world, if this is it, if this life is all it has and one day everything burns up, the worst life would be a life that was meaningless, that was pointless, that suffered. What a horrible existence that would be if that's it that they had such a bum rap that this person wasn't able to have a fair, full, happy life. It's just, it's unconscionable. 
So we need to try to eliminate that. We need to try to make it possible for everybody to live their best version of themselves, to be the best version of them. We need to try to make that possible and try to eliminate as much suffering in our lives and in the lives of others. The other alternative to the natural view is a very religious view. Do you see this very clearly at play in the world as well? Where it again gives a similar picture that you know, the world is just going to all burn up probably at the end. It all, it's all going to end, but we can escape it. If we're good enough, we'll avoid all of that. That there is waiting for us a spiritual, non-physical existence away from the suffering and the pain of this world, the brokenness of this world. It says, yep, there's all this darkness, there's all this pain and suffering. I just can't wait. Hopefully one day we can all escape the physical world and we'll all float off into some sort of void or realm or place where there'll be no more pain and suffering, where there'll be no more physical bodies, uh, and that this world is really not a real world, right? This life is not the real life. This world is not the real world. It's all very illusionary, depending on which religion you espouse to, uh, or it's a testing ground. This world is the first attempt at a life, and the real life is the one that's to come. The real world is out there. It's a different place. And depending on how well you live your life now, you will get a better life then. So if I can live really good now, then I'll have a better life in that next world. Uh, the, if, I can, there, there, if I endure my sufferings well here, if I really just work hard at it, and I will get rewarded with a better version of the life that I really wanted then. I'll get rewarded in that next life. You live a good life. Don't get too attached to the things of this world because it all passes away. And wait for that day when we'll be free from this world. Both of these pictures, I mean, they, they, they're very compelling. They're compelling pictures. But Scripture gives a far more beautiful picture than these. That it's not everything ends, and nor is it an escape to a non-physical world. But the picture of Scripture for the end of the world is of a feast. Right? And that image is throughout. It's not just here in Isaiah. If you know your Bible, like, like Josh is talking about, it, this image of feasting is everywhere. This is going to be the end of it. The end of the world ends in a marriage feast. That God and his people will feast together at the end of all things. And it's a striking image that everything, one day, everything in this world will be recreated. Everything will be remade and will be made new. God made everything Scripture is very clear on that. God made everything in this world that sin has ruined everything because everything has been ruined by that darkness. Everything has been. So God will remake everything. And he's going to remake it in an imperishable manner, in a way that it can never go wrong again. And it'll be glorious and beautiful to what it truly was intended to be. And we see this. We see the first fruits of that remaking process in Jesus who rises up imperishable, who can never die again. This is the hope. That everything does pass away, but comes back new. There is a fire, there's the refining, there's the death of everything, but everything comes back. Nothing is lost. That there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, new bodies. Not the absence of bodies, not the absence of the heavens and the earth, 
not an escape from all of these things, but that everything that we have will be made new, will be made perfect. That nothing will ever be lost. Everything will be there in that new Jerusalem. Everything matters. Every life matters. Every seemingly insignificant part of this world will matter and will be made perfect and we will be redeemed. Everything that we feel like has been lost, because so much of our life is a, is a feeling of loss. We lose people. We lose jobs. We lose things. We just, this loss, I'll never experience this. I'll never have that. I'll never get this. What about these longings and desires? And in this, this picture of the end, nothing is lost. Everything is waiting for us. That marriage is there. All of the longings of our hearts will be satisfied. There will be no more wanting of things. There's no longing that you've ever had in your life that won't be satisfied on that day. There will be no wrong ever committed in this world that won't be made right on that day. We will all be together for eternity with Christ. And the picture out of Isaiah is that we will be together, living together physically in the city of God with Christ as our son in the very midst, as the light of our city. He will be with us. We will have God and he will fill us and we will be feasting together with restored hearts and lives, rejoicing in what God has done. Everything will be made right. We'll finally be right. Those desires, that longing, that selfishness will finally be extinguished. And all the hurt and the pain of our life will just be like a distant memory. I can just barely remember what that was like. You know, I, I think I've used this analogy before. It's like now at this time of my life, at, you know, in my 40s, I look back and try to remember middle school. It's like I remember it being hard, but I can't remember everything anymore. Those memories are fading from me, right? And it'll be like that, right? Those memories of sadness and the hurt and the pain of this life will be faded from us. Like I can, if I think about it, maybe I can kind of remember what that was, those hurts, but now it's gone because it's just so filled with that fullness of joy that comes from Christ himself being with us. That this is the ending of the story. That the whole world is going to be made new, and Christ is going to reign, and we will all be together feasting and celebrating God. Now, knowing that changes everything, I would argue. Knowing the ending to the story is incredibly important. Scripture seems to think so. The author of the Bible seems to think so. This is told to us time and time and time again throughout the Scriptures, reminding us of the ending of our stories. And it's important because if you know this ending, it will change the way that you live now. And I think that we see a couple of things in particular that this does to us. If we believe this, if we know this to be the truth, it does two things. Probably more than two things, but I'm just going to talk about two things. The first is that it gives comfort. Right, when you think about those options for how to deal with the pain and sufferings of this world, the gospel actually gives comfort, true comfort. In the face of the suffering and the injustices of this world, it allows us to be honest about it. Right, when, someone, when a child dies, you can say, this isn't right. I don't have to say, well, it's natural. You know, cancer is a natural cause and effect. I'm sorry it happened to you, but this is what it is. No. Right? I can say, no. That was, that's wrong. That is not God's intention. 
We can be honest in the midst of hurt and heartache. We don't have to have just a visceral feeling of like this is wrong, but I can't really explain why it's wrong. I actually know it's wrong because I know that this is not what God intended for people. When I see injustice, when I see hurt, when I see pain, I can be honest with it and say that's not God's intention. And I can also be honest and say, and it won't always be this way. That this isn't the way it's going to be. What comfort there is in that. That everything that has been lost will be there. That child will be there. We will be feasting together. That loss will be restored. That nothing has been lost. That yes, right now, this isn't right. And this world is ruled by darkness and sin and death. But that's not the way it will be on that day. And we look forward to the day. It gives tremendous comfort where we can be honest with those things. If, if I can't live my best life now, you know, and I'm using that phrase, I saw a t-shirt over the weekend with that, and it's like, it's like that's a great t-shirt, right? Live your best life. And it's like, what if I can't live my best life? There's a better, I, it's coming. My best life is coming. <laughs> and it's, there's a lot of hope in that, right? Because if I suffer with debilitating disease or mental handicaps or things, I mean, there's a lot of legitimate, I can't have a good life right, by the world standards. What's coming for me? That's coming. I can take hope knowing that this is not it, that my best life is to come, but not in some escaped world, an escaped body, but that this broken life, this broken body will be made beautiful and new. That's more hopeful. That's more beautiful. It's more in alignment with who God is, that he would take our broken bodies and make them beautiful than just discard them and give us new ones. So it gives us hope. It gives hope and comfort because it helps to remind us that the story of the universe isn't about us. And that's helpful. Because if, the, if it was all about me and my story, I'd be crushed by that. And the expectations and the weight and the worry and the guilt and the shame. Because you feel that. That naturalistic worldview and perspective of just trying to live your best life. You are riddled with guilt and shame for the injustices that you take part in every day that you don't want to, when you actually are honest with yourself, when all these things, and just this, the feelings of guilt, the feelings of needing to perform, needing to be good, needing to do all these things, and you just can't do it, and it ruins you. And the same for the religious worldview, right? Because they're really the same, just on opposite sides, but really living the same life. That religious worldview, too, if this world is just a test for you that you've got to live up to, you've got to perform so you can earn this good life, I mean, that'll, it crushes you. Am I suffering enough? Am I suffering well enough? Am I doing enough? What, do I know I'm going to be for sure that I'm going to be at that feast one day? How do I know? Well, if I, I better live good. I better do what's right so I can be sure to have a place at the table. That those feelings of dread and guilt and shame will crush us. It won't comfort us. It strikes still fear in us. The other thing I think this picture does for us, it gives comfort to those who need comfort, which is all of us at times. But the other really helpful thing that knowing the ending of the story does is it keeps us from growing comfortable. And this is probably where we need to be called out the most. And this is why we're going to go through Ezra and Nehemiah as well here coming next week with George in this new series. We have work to do. We, we can't, the, the story's not over. We have a tendency to see these false endings 
You know, and if you know this in a good movie or a good story, right, there's always a good false ending, you know, where it feels like, oh, it's all been resolved. This is it. And it's like, there's 45 minutes left. How, what's going to happen? <laughs> we have the same problem and tendencies where we become so comfortable in our lives that this is it. This can't get any better. No. This, it, it's going to get much better. Stop being so easily satisfied and so comforted with this little life that you have and that you've built for yourself. For many of us, we, we are so richly blessed by God. We do get the abilities. We, do, we are living a very good life. We, we, we have this capacity. We have the money to be able to do these things. We have the homes and the families and church families and community with us where we get to experience and we get to feast and we get to celebrate and enjoy each other in God's goodness. I mean, it's, what a privilege Right, and we, and we know it's a privilege, but it's not the ultimate feast. Every feast that we encounter, that we have together, this is why we have a meal during house church, it's not the ultimate feast. It's meant to point to another feast that's to come, that there is no true comfort in this world that's a true comfort in this world. And all of this will pass away and be replaced with a greater one. Every joy that we have is just a taste of what is to come. And so to know this, to feel this, to see that greater ending that's to come for us helps to wake us up out of our comfortable lives where we feel like we've reached it. I've reached my pinnacle. I have everything that I need when the reality is I don't. The darkness is everywhere still. I've just been able to put up some barriers, some protection around me so I don't feel the darkness as much. I don't feel the sin and the hurt and the pain. And we talked about that before when we were going through the minor prophets, that moral proximity. We move away from poverty. We move away from different things so I don't have to feel it or see it. I, I'm, I'm doing really well. Knowing this helps to wake us up out of that comfort, to see what it is that's really coming. Because if this is true... If this is really the ending to the story, we're going to live differently. We're going to work differently. We're actually going to work for the progress of the kingdom together. And coming out of Philippians, now going into Ezra and Nehemiah, if this is true, if God is going to remake everything beautiful, if his kingdom truly is coming, if there's going to be an invasion one day in force of the kingdom of God and everything wrong in this world will be made right, okay. I'm willing to work for that. I'm willing to get on board that. Right? I'll sacrifice for that, and I'll take part in that effort that's to come. And we work then in our world and in our lives and all these things with a great confidence and with a great hope. One of the illustrations that I find to be very, very helpful, I don't know if all of you will find this as helpful, probably depending on your interest in, in history, <laughs> but... One illustration that I find to be very helpful was C.S. Lewis gave this in Mere Christianity, but this idea of like occupied France in World War II. If you're unfamiliar with a lot of this, you know, I blame your history teachers. You probably didn't get enough history in school. But the, you know, France fell very quickly in the war. Hitler was able to just to kind of roll through France and he occupied France. They set up a government, the Vichy government in France. It, it looked, French life went on during the war. It looked like France. Right? There, was not these, there weren't wars, there weren't all these issues. You, if, if you could live your life, you could live your life. The battles were being fought elsewhere. 
France, the building, nothing was bombed, nothing was being destroyed. You could keep going on with life in this France, but you have puppet government over you. You know, you know who's really pulling the strings. You understand this evil force that's out there. But in your life, you could just keep going on with your life. Lewis gives this picture of, but what if you knew the Allies were about to invade? Which is what happens in D-Day. They all get in boats and they come from England and they invade that seemingly peaceful France. If you knew that that invasion was coming, how would you live your life? And would you have this expectation that of just, you know, I can just participate in that victory parade. I can't wait for the Allies to come. That'll be great. Good news. And when they come, and I'll just jump into the victory parade and start celebrating with them. That'll be an awkward experience. If I didn't help, if I didn't do anything to prepare for their coming, to help with this invasion that's to come. This is the picture of God's people. We live in this world under governments that are not true governments. We live in this world in cities that's not the true city. We live in a family that's not the ultimate true family. We live in this world and we enjoy all of these things, but the true and the real kingdom and king is coming. How are we going to live? We will use our lives for the kingdom. We will use our talents, our resources, our positions of influence for that kingdom. You know, you would never tell someone in that Occupy France scenario, you know, yeah, quit your job. Yeah, you have too much money. Why don't you just sell it all off? No, 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 use it. Use it for the resistance. Use your position of influence. Use your money. Use what you have. Don't you understand what's coming? The new kingdom is going to be established. Use what you have now, what you've been given to fight, to be part of this resistance effort to the kingdom, the true kingdom that's to come. But the, that's a limited analogy because there's a lot of despair about whether or not the Allies would actually win the war. Within Christianity, there's no despair, though, but there's confidence in that Christ has already won this war, which is why we labor with such hope and confidence. Right? Can you imagine? I mean, we, we find compelling the idea that, like, all right, I'll help the Allies, you know, I'll fight in the resistance, not knowing if I'll ever win. But if we actually knew the outcome was a victory, <laughs> and we actually knew the king wins in the end, oh, man, well, now I have no fear of failure. I don't need to succeed in this life. I don't need to. Christ will succeed whether or not I succeed. I will do my life. I will honor him in the little ways that I can. We give everything that we have. Some of us have lots of resources to give. Some have very few resources, many talents, few talents. You just serve. I give these things to the king because I'm confident that the king wins in the end, that this ultimate vindication is going to happen. It's such hope. We have this hope that the darkness has been overcome. The resurrection proves this. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, we can be sure of the glorious ending that awaits us. He's the first fruit of the victory. Everything sad in the world is being made right. Everything broken is slowly being put back right. Jesus being the first evidence of that, and we can see it and feel it in our lives as well. Right? There's parts of me that are being put back right, slowly and painfully, but it's being put right again. And I get the taste of it. 
and I can experience it. And I get these foreshadows and these feelings that there's more to come. He's doing more work in me. He's doing more work in this world. And I experience it more and more and more as I walk in the reality of Christ and his resurrection. But it requires intentional acts of remembrance. Right? It does. It takes remembrance, efforts to renew our minds, not just in what God has done in our lives. I think you know, American evangelicalism has been good about that. We give thanks often. We pray often. We thank God at dinner. We thank God in lots of ways. We have prayer breakfasts and all these things. But instead of just remembering what God has done and even asking for him to change this, our lives and our circumstances, we need to have these active times of remembrance and of looking forward to what is to come and praying for what is to come to come, knowing that it will come. It's, it's counterintuitive. <laughs> but as I pray for what is to come, or as I look forward to what is to come, knowing that it's going to happen, I grow in my confidence and my hope and my selflessness because I see that this world is not about me. My life isn't even about me. Whether I live my best life or my worst life, Christ is still king, and he will redeem all of those things. And that one day... I will have that fullness, and I will have that full life that I've been longing for and the satisfaction that I've been longing for. We need to be reminded of that ultimate feast that's to come, and we need to see all of these areas of our life that could be these false endings to the story and be reminded that they're false endings to the story and to see them as tastes of what's to come, to be thankful for the joy and the feasting. The, you know, you can imagine that with, like, resistance fighters in France, kind of thing, like, the joy that must have been there when they could get together and eat together and speak together freely. And I mean, what a joy that is. But to re recognize that's not the ultimate one, that they're working for one day when they can all do this together without any longer, where the, where the enemy has been fully vanquished and thrown off his throne. That's what we long for. And we get to participate in it now and experience these things now. But ultimately, we need to see Jesus as our hope and our confidence, as our life and our peace as we go through this. We see Jesus, right, feasting with his disciples the night before his death. Right, this, it's not a coincidence, right, that he has a meal before his, with his disciples and offers up his very body, his very blood as their bread and as their wine. And says, feast on me and I will sustain you. Right, find life in me. As we see Christ and as we are reminded of him and as we see his offering for us and we find our life in him, our peace in him, we find the hope and the confidence to work for his kingdom that's to come. Let me pray.